Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 406. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. This week's interview is with Julie Cotino. Julie's an author, a brand passionista, who is founder and CEO of Brand Twist Brand Consultancy. In this conversation with Julie, we discuss the origin of her brand tattoos test, her work and lessons learned while working as head of brand for Virgin USA. The evolution of branding today, the power of purpose. We also look at Julie's work at Brand Twist, which is also the name of her best-selling book. At the end of the episode, Julie has a lovely offer for listeners, a business first responder offer for her brand booster. You'll find all the show notes, of course, on minterdial.com. Please do consider dropping your rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Julie Cotino as I would like to pronounce your last name. I am so delighted to have you on the show. I reached out to you, uh, amongst other things, because I realized that I had inadvertently stolen something that you invented, as far as I'm concerned, the brand tattoo test. You are the author of Twist, How Fresh Perspectives Build Breakthrough Brands. You're the founder and CEO of Brand Twist. You've done work at Virgin in your past, and I love... The, all the, the, the twisting words. It makes me think of my friend Mitch Joel at Twisty Marge. Welcome to the show, Julie. In your own words, how would you like to describe yourself? I'd like to describe myself as a brand passionista. Ah. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So I, I want to go back to this moment uh, that, that united us. Uh, and obviously, we know other people together, but... Um, this brand tattoo test that you came up with, uh, can, do you remember the moment that you thought of it? Because uh, all I have is the, the blog post you wrote in 2011. And, uh, and I, so I, how did you come into it? What was your journey into it? Well, actually, I was working in the 90s at Gray Advertising, and I was working at, on the Kool-Aid account. And at that point, yeah, there was no social media. So young men were actually shaving the figure of Kool-Aid man into the back of their hair, sending those Polaroids to Kraft Foods, and they would eventually make their way to the advertising agency. And I remember thinking that that was a bellwether of how we were connecting with the target audience and the teens. And there was a point where Kool-Aid man was still in a big fat, you know, red suit breaking through walls where we were getting less of those photos. And to me, that was, um, you know, a signal signal that we should um, update him. And we did. We created a CGI Kool-Aid man that started to um, skateboard and, you know, use mountain bikes and all those things. But this was when the X Games first came out. So we made him a lot cooler. And that kind of shaving into the head morphed into the idea of the tattoo test. And I said for many years with my corporate clients, that's, you know, there's lots of brand research that can be done, but if people are willing to shave your icon into their hair or tattoo you, your icon on their body, then you're doing something right. Then you're really creating loyal brand ambassadors. So notwithstanding the fact that my reference for Kool-Aid goes back to Ken Kesey and his times. Uh, so I can just imagine trying to 
shave that shape into your head on acid and how that goes down. But there's a big difference between cutting your hair and making a tattoo. And, and I, it's almost like, you know, having a temporary tattoo and having a hard inked into your skin tattoo. Big difference for me. Yeah, there is difference, but I think there's also a lot of similarity, which is for these young men, it was mostly actually young African-American men, your hair and what's on the back of your neck, you know, that's a huge symbol of who you are and who you identify with. Mm -hmm. And so, and, you know, there's a precision in that and there's an art form in that. So yes, while it's less, you know, permanent, it's still really prime real estate and it's an act of love and expression. And, um, you know, to me, that was, that was important. That was an important sign. And then of course, you know, made it way to start noticing. And when I was at Interbrand, I interviewed somebody for a senior position and, and in the middle of the interview, he said, can I show you something? And he started to pull his pants leg up and, you know, I'm thinking, where's this going? Uh-oh. Yeah. Uh-oh. And he wanted to show me that he had a Nike uh, swoosh tattoo. And I said, are you a runner? And he said, no, I just really believe in this brand, in the message. It was almost a religion for him. And then I noticed also when Steve Jobs died, lots of people went out. You know, it was actually around the time that my, my own father passed away. And I was kind of dealing with my own grief and, you know, how to honor him. And I remember the news of Steve Jobs hit me really hard for, you know, for lots of reasons. And I remember going on, um, you know, Facebook and, and Twitter and seeing lots of people getting Apple tattoos, you know, on their wrists and on their ankles. So I think it's a sign of, of brand devotion. Totally. Of course, my, my wife actually worked for Apple um, during the 90s. So actually was in between the, uh, in, in the non-Jobs era. But um I when I looked at it, Julie, I thought the most important idea was whether you can get your employees the tattoo. Because I I found I, I feel like this notion of brand, the condensed element of brand, you talk about it in your book, is having your employees living and breathing it. And at some level, it, it's it's most important that you get them. Because if you're just telling the customers, you go get a tattoo, but I don't have to wear one. It's almost that's, I don't want to say hypocritical, but it, it's light. What do you think? I agree. I, and I don't think you ever tell your customers you go get a tattoo ever, ever. You know, <laughs> I think, but no, I, but I'm saying that not from my opinion about tattoos. And if my son who's 19 is listening to this, I just want him to know, Sasha, I have not changed my opinion about tattoos, uh, you know, as it relates to Judaism in particular. But um, I think that, uh you're right. It, it has to be something that somebody identifies with your brand um, so, so deeply that they want it. And it's interesting because I had a picture pop up on my Facebook feed of a launch that we did for one of the Virgin America um, events, one of the markets. And I was with Richard Branson and the band In Excess. And there's a picture of me. I you know, a cocktail or two, hanging out with the band, I had um, a virgin tattoo, temporary, um, on my shoulder. And there's a picture of Richard kind of pointing to my tattoo. So I, I do believe, and that was one of the many, many lessons that I learned um, from Richard, is that your employees, of course, are your brand ambassadors, and they need to believe 
um, you know, they need to drink the Kool-Aid. They need to believe in, in the brand. And um, those are the first people that you should be looking at to make sure that they not only are connecting with the brand, but really understand what the brand believes in. Yeah, that was one of the chapters I liked the most in your book, Julie, where you talk about the the notion of living your brand, being the brand. And that's something that I absolutely aspire to. When I've had the chance to to meet Richard, Sir Richard, a couple of times, and and definitely love his energy, what he's about. Uh, and, and no one's perfect. We know that. When you when you look back at what you're doing today, what would you say is the thing that you got from the Virgin time, whether it's like that Virgin, uh, what it was that cannon shot you did in Boston? What, what, what would be for you the lo- most lasting lesson, the one that you're still like, oh, my God, thank you, Virgin, for making me understand this thing? Because, I mean, at the end of the day, it's all an experience, right? We're learning as we go. Yeah. I mean, there's so many, but I would say that Richard really believes and the Virgin brand really believes that the purpose of a business is as a force for good and it's to solve people's problems. And I always start with the customer. I always think, and it's really interesting right now to think how have people's lives changed and how have what they're looking for in the way they purchase and worship and teach and learn and love and all those things have changed. And I think we have to twist what we, what we like to sell with what people really need right now. And it comes from really active, active listening. And I remember in particular being in Indianapolis of all places um, with, with Richard, he was speaking at an event and I was accompanying him and um, he took a car service. This was a little bit pre Uber. And um, I took the car, same car service uh, about an hour after him um, to go to a different airport. And the driver said, are, are you going to sit in the back? <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, I, I'd like to, if that's okay with you. And I, I was just curious. I said, why? He said, well, I just took your boss to the airport and he sat in the front. And the driver happened to be um, like a lot of people in the Midwest. I think he had originally come there from Sudan. And he said he spent an hour on the way from the event to the to the airport with uh, with Sir Richard and Richard asked him about his life, about his family, about how he liked driving a cab. You know, he didn't spend that hour on the phone on his BlackBerry in the back in the yeah. back seat. Yeah, you know. and you know those were BlackBerry days, so he wasn't on his BlackBerry. He wasn't, you know, he was actively engaged um, and using this as an opportunity to meet somebody he maybe wouldn't come into contact with normally and find out about their lives. So I think that that curiosity about how people live and, and what they need and how brands can can help with that is something I saw over and over again at Virgin firsthand that I really try to model. And in answering that need, I really try to model um, approaching it as a Virgin, approaching it with no set agenda, no preconceived notion of how I'm going to solve someone's problem, but really just listening, being open-minded and saying, okay, there's a different way to solve this problem that comes from outside of the category. The freshest ideas, I believe, and this is what the twist method is all about, take your brand blinders off 
You know, mm. so when Richard started Virgin Atlantic, he had no experience mm. in the airline industry. He was a very successful record producer. And he said, I'm going to, you know, what's wrong with flying? Well, honestly, it's boring. You know, it's it's like being in a library. So he decided to twist that rock and roll uh, feeling and experience and create a Virgin Atlantic. There's no doubt that in the two occasions I, I spoke with him, I felt that he was immensely present and listening and didn't have the haughtiness that you can see in so many ego-filled CEOs, typically men, who are on other agendas. They may have charm, but it's more about them. And that Sir so Richard has that sort of just naturalness that along with uh, probably, you know, obviously some in interest because he's interested in figuring out things and, and, and seeing people. And as he says himself, I'm dyslexic. He's, he's not interested in sort of an academic thing. He's very much a man of the ground. And he, and he seems, despite all his success and wealth, to have retained some sort of groundedness that, I mean, obviously, I, don't, I haven't spoken to him recently and I don't know the true ins and outs but he just have he he brings that's the brand that he carries it is true because i actually reached out to him recently for his 70th birthday sent him an email told him what was going on and he sent me an email back which was very kind cuz sure he got hundreds of them and said um you know, of all the things that I'd shared about the book and my practice and how he inspired me, I also shared some lessons that I learned about uh, family from him. And in his email back to me, he wrote, congratulations on your family. Because for him, that was the biggest measure of, of success. And of course, he lost his mother this um, week uh, at 96. And I remember seeing them together. And, you know, she actually helped him start his first business. And that lesson is um, is authentic. You know, the the way what you see is what you get. So uh, there, are, I have so many other questions, but to the extent that the person at the top of the helm is so important to representing, modeling the behavior, incarnating, giving the vision. When you are uh, when you are the entrepreneur that founds the company, it's one thing. It's just another gig being, let's say, hired by a headhunter to be dropped in to be the CEO of a new company. It, that's, that would be the worst case compared to, you know, working up through the ranks that he is. But by, you know, by that time, you, you know, you have 0.1% of the company, if, if, if that, you know, stock options and so on. But you are not the brand. So you have to acquire elements of the brand. And so when you're working with companies, how do you manage? Because I mean, the vast majority of the times we're not dealing with Bezos or a, a Gates or the founder or whatever. We're dealing with the existing executive in the big companies. How does one look at that issue as to how the CEO, mercenary or other can incarnate the brand? And, and how important is that for you in your twisting approach? It's extremely important. And in fact, I have turned down many, many assignments when uh, the CEO refused to be involved because I, you know, I think the CEO is the chief branding officer. So 
when I do, I do a lot of interactive twist workshops. And if I have a CEO that says, well, I'm not sure I'm going to stay the whole time, you know, or I'll stay at the beginning, but then I'm going to leave. Then I insist, or frankly, I threaten to cancel the workshop because if they send the signal that working on, and a lot of times I do a lot of brand refreshes, brand transformation, if it's not important enough for the most senior person in the company, then we shouldn't be doing it. You know, another way that manifests itself is I do a lot of brand guideline work. And um, I always say the most important page of a 20-page brand book is the first page when the CEO, and oftentimes I ghostwrite it for them or work with them on it, but when the CEO says, I stand behind this initiative. You know, this isn't lipstick on a pig. This isn't changing our logo. This is fundamentally the story that we need to tell um, that we um, need to tell together. I'm 100% behind it and, you know, won't be easy, but we're going to get this new story out to the marketplace. So I think it starts with the CEO, but I think it also has to go way, way down, you know, and I had an assistant at, at Virgin when I worked at Virgin Management, Nikki, who was the receptionist, you know, we had a very small office in the U.S., about 20 people, and she was the brand assistant, but she was also the receptionist. And one day I came in and she made herself um, a name tag. And under her name, she wrote director first impressions because she was at, you know, the reception desk. She was the first person you saw when you came in. And, you know, the next day I promoted her because I, I said, that's somebody who really gets it. That's somebody who gets the Virgin brand and understands that, um, you know, her role in, in communicating the brand and making sure people feel welcome and heard and, you know, uh, all of those things is huge. It's not about answering the phones. I love that. That's a great mantra. It reminds me of a woman in my team, uh, Anne Mincy, when I was running Redken, the hairdressing company, and uh, her unofficial title was the director of love. And And how little we feel we can talk about that kind of a thing in a business environment. And, you know, this is a big corporate company, L'Oreal. So the, the point that I sort of was angling at was, let's say in front of you, you have this very intentionally good, smart CEO, wants to do the right thing. Uh, so, hey, sir or ma'am, um, which part of your body would you like to tattoo yourself with? Because in the end of the day, that's sort of the, the skin in the game element where you really know that they are living the brand. They're not just doing this for an assignment, a five-year stint, got to get the numbers up, then they have the trade out and sell up and sell on. You know, where there's a, a real element of, this is not just lipstick on a pig, this is me. Yeah, and I don't think you have to be the founder to, um, to get there. I think it might be easier because you were there at the beginning. But I work with a lot of, second generation, third generation CEOs who might have been brought in when a significant investment was made in the company or to turn around the brand. And I act as a brand consigliere. You know, I have, I have one CEO client that we just meet every time he's based in Australia, but every time he's in town, we just go out for lunch. And he, he asked me the questions that he can't ask anybody else. Because when you get to a certain point as a head of a company, People think you know all about brand, but the truth is, and I'm sure you've seen this, very few marketing people 
rise to the ranks of the CEO. It's usually somebody comes in through finance or sales or tech. And so they don't necessarily have that learning. And I've had CEOs that have written to me and say, you know, I've been to brand school now from working with you. You know, my, my brand school is actually something for very small entrepreneurs, but I use the same lessons in these one-on-one meetings with CEOs. I had a CEO, um, you know, email me on a Saturday night <laughs> you know, at midnight um, why I was looking at my email on a Saturday night at midnight, we can talk about is a different conversation, but this is a CEO of, a, of an investment management company and his wife and daughter had just gotten back from Disney and they had talked about their experience at Disney and they had gotten a follow-up email from Disney that was really quite special and on brand. And he forwarded it to me. He said, look, Julie, this is such a great example of a brand, you know, touch point. And I, had, I just had to share it with you. And you that, know, that was from Mickey. That was a message from Mickey, right? Yeah, it was it, basically it was a message from Mickey. It was very personalized. It was really fun. It was very yeah. graphic. But the point was that he recognized he wouldn't. He hadn't. You know, three months before that, six months before that, we were talking about redoing his own brand. Nobody had really taught him about the power of a brand touch point. And then he was so tuned into it from us working together. That when it came, you know, to his family, he seized on it right away, and he actually couldn't wait <laughs> to share it with me the following Monday when we had our regular schedule call. He sent it to right. me Saturday night, right. you know, at midnight, saying, "Isn't this a great example? How can we twist with our customers and, you know, leverage this kind of idea?" And that's when you know that you're ready for your tattoo, right? Yeah, <laughs> I totally agree. <laughs> when you've connected. Uh, that's a that's a beautiful story, and and it certainly shows the power of a brand that's living itself, as in the case of Disney. So, in in the well, I was going to mention that uh, one of my issues a lot is that the boards of governors, boards of directors, don't have enough brand knowledge on the board. It's, in my experience anyway, it's generally. There's great long-term visioning, very intelligent people, but it, it seems to be that brand is never on the plate. It's, it's when you get into these large companies as well. When you have a portfolio of brands underneath, Procter or, or the like, and Unilever, it's sort of too many brands to talk about. You know, it's, it's almost. And then for the rest, it's just not really a topic of interest. It's more like financial planning and how we go. What story we can tell the shareholders and you know, who should we buy, you know, lots of strategic stuff, but brand doesn't seem to fall into the category of strategy. Yeah, because people separate it. They, they treat it as a creative exercise where what I learned through Interbrand and working at Virgin is your brand is your business. You really can't separate them. You know, you have to think about your brand very, very early on because it's your promise and your values and that should actually lead and direct your product development, who you hire, who you partner with, how you compensate people. I mean, I find this so much with tech companies in particular, they spend a lot of time making things faster and making things, you know, based on what they can do, but it's not necessarily connected. And so I work with a lot of tech companies to say, wait a minute, let's let's look at what is it that we're promising, you know, what is it that people need? And then 
reorient the development there. But I agree with you. I I hope it's changing. And I'll tell you one thing that I feel hopeful about, and I know you've written a lot about this, is I think that what we've seen in the pandemic is that people really do care about who's in charge. (laughs) And they care about uh, values and they care about actions and social good and things like that. And to me, that is all part of your brand strategy. You know, I've seen studies, I'm sure you have too, that millennials will really, you know, really care about who the CEO is of their company and what their behavior is. And so I think when we start to broaden our definition of brand away from logos and websites and things like that to, you know, how we're as a company, what we stand for and then how we're telling that story. Then brand has a place in HR decisions. Then brand has um, you know, a much bigger role in product development. And so I think the seat at the table, I hope, because I actually would really love to be on a board. It's one of my goals for the next couple of years. I see so many companies where I think they are missing uh, that, that seat at the table. I'm hoping that seat will open up. When we talk about this idea that gen, the, the younger generations are, are interested in, in the who, the CEOs, the values of the company, I, I can't help but think that the current narrative remains that the purpose of a company is interesting or most powerful for the customer. And, and so we, we talk about, we've, I mean, you know, obviously I talk about a lot about purpose but I, I do feel like when you're going down the aisle of a CVS or a Walmart or wherever you're doing your purchases, you don't you, you see the product is four twenty nine whatever. You're, are you thinking about the value? Can you check that the values are truly happening de facto? So this notion of purpose at some level, it, it, for me, it has to resonate at a deeper, more substantial level when it comes to employees and, and, and the work that goes in the ethics, you see it from the back. And I think that's important, but how, how often is it really relevant? I mean, you're not going to go down the aisle in Walmart, check on your mobile. Oh, let me see uh, this uh, mouthwash values check. But, you know. Yeah, but you, you can see it in other ways. I mean, I, I think it has to be in the action. So for example, when I go, you know, I happen to shop at, at CVS. I do know that CVS a few years ago decided to stop selling cigarettes, you know, and I've had lung cancer in my family and that, that value stuck with me and it, it does help. I do see that they, um, you know, I do read about how they treat their employees. I do know on a deeper level, but I do have to tell you my 23 year old daughter, you know, she will say to me, she's not necessarily shopping in CVS, but she's buying a lot of skincare. And she recently, I'm trying to remember the name of it, but she said to me, this is a really cool company. You know, it's uh, biodegradable packaging. It's women. I follow them on Instagram and they're always telling really cool stories. I mean, she knew the values of that company were very front and center. And for skincare, she's the future of the customer. You know, I'm already in my routines and you know, maybe there's less hope for me uh, moving forward, but you know, but she uh, and her friends, they do notice that because 
they follow these brands and these brand influencers on social media and they feel like they know them from their Instagram posts. Um, and so there is a connection there. I, I do think you can have it conscious. I mean, look at Nike, you know, with everything that they're doing. I mean, am I buying or is my son buying the Nike sneakers because he's thinking? Oh, uh, Kaepernick? Y- yeah, you know, probably not directly. You know, it's definitely about price and fit and quality, but those are givens. I don't think you can ultimately, you have to have a great price, you know, or a good, or maybe in sneakers, you should be a little too expensive. That seems to add to the allure, but you have to have great quality. They have to fit. They have to not, you know, turn to trash after a couple pickup basketball games, but he is aware because he follows a lot of athletes and he's seen Colin Ka- Kaepernick and he's, you know, we watch a lot of NFL and all that other TV and we've seen the Nike ads, you know, that talk about using your voice and things like that. So I think at one level, it is in your mind. Will people ever say that's the reason why I bought those shoes? No, which is why I don't believe in direct brand research like that. I don't believe in asking people about brand values in brand research uh, because you're not going to say that out loud. But if I, you know, I actually, um, when he was in middle school, I had the great honor of being the career day speaker for middle school for his eighth grade class. I've never prepared so much for a presentation in my entire well, you're being life. judged by your children. Oh my goodness. I mean, I was, I was so nervous. And then afterwards he sent me a little text, you know, way to go mom. But I showed a pair of sneakers with and without the Nike logo. And I asked them, you know, I asked the, the students what's different about these two? And it wasn't, they, they didn't say just, you know, one's more swoosh. expensive. Yeah. Or the one has the swish and one doesn't, you know, they, they're so brand savvy. You know, I, I did that game where you take the logo off a different, or you show a logo and have them guess and they know, and they can tell you which athlete is Nike and which is Adidas and what's the difference between them. They do know. Well, so I um, just wanted to go back to the CVS, Norm DeGrev, the CMO. I've had him on my show and, and talked about that cigarette movement and moment. And, and obviously you and I are rather sort of aware of these things. Um, second point I wanted to point out was that I love the fact that we've had your 19-year-old son and 23-year-old daughter on the show. And I think that's a very virgin idea. The fact is that you're very comfortable talking about the full Julie Cotino. I mean, obviously you're not giving me your whole, you know, everything, but you're talking about you as a real person, your real experiences, the nervousness. I, that for me is a Sir Richard type of imprint, just the way you're coming off. And I'm not saying, you know, you're not your own person, but that's what I think CEOs need to be able to do to incarnate a feeling set of, uh, values that you that are congruent in all aspects of who you are. I agree 100%. And I actually, I do a lot of work on personal branding and particularly with women. We've been taught to compartmentalize. Mm-hmm. You know, this is my family life and this is my work life. And if the two, you know, shall meet, then I'm going to be thought of less of. And I don't know that I, that lesson for me was definitely reinforced by Richard, but I think I've always believed it. I'm just, um, you know, this is who I am and it may not appeal to everybody. And if it doesn't, then there are a lot of other branding experts that you should work with, but 
I can't separate those things because my life isn't separate. You know, my, my iPhone, I've got a message from my daughter and then I've got a message from a CEO of a company. Then I have a message from my son. Then I have a message from an entrepreneur. They're all in one device. It's all, you know, it's all part of my day. And I have to be honest, I think embracing it is much better. I mean, when I'm stuck, I do a lot of naming. That's a big part of my, um, of my offering. And I was, and naming is hard, you know, finding an available brand name. And I'm, I'm naming a tech company right now. And my uh, client kept saying, oh, I just want something that sounds different. And I thought, well, okay, <laughs> that's a, what kind of brief is that? And then I thought a lot of the conversations that I have with my son are about the rap artists that he follows and the names are just, they, they break the mold. You know, they're called the weekend or, you know, they, they have, they have words that are put together in unique ways. And so I actually enlisted my son and I said, tell me about some of the, you know, the rappers that you really like, like, why is it chance the rapper? Why does he need to put the rapper after his name? And I actually used that, um, that nomenclature rules as part of my exploration for this company and it hasn't been named yet. So I can't tell you what it is, but one of the names that we're seriously considering is three initials you know, because, and it, it, it's very fresh and it stands for something. So I think rather than separate them, uh, I think using whatever your passion in life is, you know, my, after my children is probably my dog. You know? <laughs> and um, I got a dog uh, kind of late to it, but I have a Teddy. He's a beagle. A um, couple of years ago, I sent out an annual holiday card from me and Teddy. And I said he was the chief barking officer and I, you know, I actually said, I, somebody works for me. I said, do you think this is, how's this going to fly? Like, I know it's going to fly really well with a certain part of my target who are entrepreneurs and young and, you know, all that. But how, how's the CEO, the financial services CEO going to respond to this? And she's like, you know, that's authentic to you. You're passionate about this dog. It's been part of your journey this year. We just gotten him. Uh, he was in the background for a lot of my calls <laughs> because he's in my office. Yep, and, anyway. Yeah, yip it barking when the mailman came by. And um, I sent it out. And I can't tell you the number of responses that I got back from these CEOs that said, oh, I love this card. I I had a beagle growing up. You know, how old is Teddy? I should, you know, whatever. I mean, so that's, uh, you know, if, it, if it's an authentic part of your personal brand, I think you need to find a way to to work it in. Well, I can't agree with you more. I mean, that's actually the thesis of my new book, where it's really this this thing about giving permission to be you. And, and it, 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 you know, far be it for me to say it, the white male. But I, I studied women's studies at university. And it has been my ongoing obsession that I think women bring them whole selves to work more naturally than men. So this compartmentalizing is almost, quote unquote, natural in the man where he is brought up not to talk about these things. And then that becomes the model. But women, and, and generalizations being what they are, 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 are more aware of that fullness of life and that the, the text, you know, CEO, daughter, blah, blah, blah. That's, that, but that happens to men, but somehow they still get shut up or put behind their tie and don't feel that they're able to come out and show their dog and, and how it, it's almost making them feel weak or something or or not serious enough that I'm I'm appropriate to run the company. 
So I think it's a, a, a great lesson or position to push. In. And, and if they don't like you, then tough on them, Julie, I say. Well, you know, if they don't like hearing that in a five-minute conversation, they're certainly not going to want to work with me for six months rebranding their company, which becomes a very intimate daily, you know, occurrence. And one of the things that I start with a lot of CEOs with, you know, I'll, I'm also, and this may be unusual for a woman, but I'm a huge football fan. Now, NFL, American football, yeah, American football. Yeah, my husband's French, so we do have uh, the soccer on a lot too. But I, I watch probably eight, you know, five games a weekend. I mean, I I, and I have a nephew who's trying to go into the NFL, and so I will talk to the CEOs. You know, if they they don't want to talk about brand, they say, "Well, I'm not really brand conscious." Like, well, that's what you know. What sports team do you root for, and why? And it's not just about the record. It ends up being, you know, what what do they think that that team really stands for? How are their fans different from the fans in another city? It's just it's another entryway into, you know, understanding uh, about brand and and getting more personal. And and I think um, I do agree with you that women are more natural about it. But I have been working lately with women who are in. Um, not male dominated categories like tech and there's still a long way to go there mm-hmm. um to, to allowing women to to feel more comfortable there still is a little bit of bro culture but i think that both women and men and everything in between um should be bringing their whole selves to work and i think again with what's been happening with the pandemic we're literally in people's homes right now you know i've had mm-hmm. calls with ceos uh on saturday mornings you know, during the pandemic, I did a whole bunch of research <laughs> workshop with one client who said, you know, honestly, Julie, the best time for me to meet with you would be Saturday morning. And normally I would say no, but in March, last March and Saturday morning, I was going nowhere. So I said, okay. And his, you know, his, his computer was set up in his kitchen and his son walked by in his boxer shorts. And I heard his dog barking and he introduced me to his wife, you know, and all all these things were happening. And I love that because I think one of the things that's happening now that we're mostly working from home is we're seeing people's homes. And so we're getting glimpses of who they are as people, you know, what's behind them, um, you know, their, their photos, their bookshelves, all those things. And I think we're all going to be richer for it. Do you think that's going to have a lasting effect? Absolutely. I do not think we are going to go back to the old ways of working. And I think, you know, um, the new normal going forward will be a combination of the way we used to work and the way we're working now. And I think people will see that once they open up, um, only good comes from it. You know, opening up appropriately. I'm not talking about the people who, you know, stand up and don't have any pants on and things like that, but trousers. (laughs) But, you know, I, I think that people will see that they're connecting on a deeper level and it's positive and it's a shortcut. It's like a relationship that you have with a friend. You know, once you've reached that level where it's no more about small talk, you don't usually go backwards in a friendship, right? You, you go forwards. You either stay the same or you continue to, to deepen your relationship. You need to take, you need to take once you've got that confidence the courage all the same to continue to expose. And sometimes it goes down, it goes wrong, but that's life too. And if you're constantly worried about the 
risk of too much me exposing myself, then I'm guarded. And if I'm guarded, I don't feel like I'm transparent. And if I'm not transparent, then how can I be trusted? Exactly. I, very, very well said. And, you know, we all make mistakes, but um, I don't know. Another lesson that I've had over the last year is life is very, very short. And to me, life's too short not to bring my personality to the table. It doesn't mean I'm not going to overshare sometimes. It doesn't mean I'm yeah. not going to make mistakes. But, um, you know, I, I think most things you can, even if they are a mistake, you can move past. And I think we brands... Say- you know, that, that do well with customer recovery used to be a huge thing that, uh, that I worked on in Virgin and still work with my clients. And, you know, an apology has to be sincere. You have to own up for what you did wrong. You have to make it right. You have to move forward. And um, that's what I think we should do as human beings as well. There's a, a French expression, qui n'ose rien n'a rien. Whoever right. dares a lot. Uh, oh, if you don't dare, then you get nothing. And Sir yeah, Richard, no, of course was one of the one of the bigger dares that I know in my life. Yeah, so no um, exactly. So listen, Julie, thank you for coming on the show. I, I expected nothing less than to have a great conversation. Uh, we've talked a bit about Brand Twist, what you do there. We've mentioned your book, Twist, How Fresh Perspectives Build Breakthrough Brands. Came out in 2016. I very much enjoyed the book, the stories you tell, and the message you're passing along. How can uh, someone track you down, uh, get you on their board, darn it, because they need yeah. you, um, or uh, otherwise, uh, you know, follow you as, uh, and, get, and get your book, for example? Yeah, so, uh, well, you can always get in touch with me at julietbrandtwist.com, and the book is available on Amazon. Actually, just yesterday, we reached a number one bestseller, even though it's been out for five years, in 11 categories in four countries, because it- um, wow you know, they put the Kindle version, my publisher put the Kindle version on sale for 99 cents. But here's what I'm really passionate about now, what I'd love to help people with. I think that we can twist the uncertainty that we feel right now into opportunity. So what I'm doing is I'm doing these brand booster sessions, which are 30 minute sessions. Um, where I will look at your website, I'll look at your LinkedIn, I'll look at whatever you send me, and I'll get on and we'll talk about specific strategies to twist your target, twist your offering, and twist for the greater good. And I guarantee people will walk away with at least one idea they can use right now. And this is part of my business first responder effort. I started these last March. I've already done over 200. They, I put them at $50 because I want people to be able to afford them. I give a portion of that to Doctors Without Borders or Médecins Sans Frontières. And for your listeners, if they type in Minter, there'll be an additional discount. So if you're struggling right now, if and I know a lot of businesses are, there are ways, there is, a, I think, an imperative to take this time that is so crazy and use it to try new things on your business and on your brand. And that's what I'm passionate about is helping people twist those new ideas. And that's what I want to help people do. So you can go to brandtwist.com slash booster to book one and um, tell them Minter sent you. So it'll go up to the top of my, my queue. But um, 
yeah, I think it's a it's a win win. I get to meet new people. I have fun, and I've raised quite a bit of money for Doctors Without Borders, so I'm I'm pretty excited about that. That's a beautiful combination, Julie. Merci beaucoup. Been a pleasure to have you on. Thanks again, and uh, thanks for all the work you're doing. Uh, great messages, great uh, meaning, and good, well done on the book as well. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find all the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. And if you enjoyed the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.